I want to bring on somebody who has been able to make a very interesting impact in the movement. He's been able to get people together, talk about different things, and I think you'll enjoy her as much as I do. She is Josie the Redhead Libertarian. She is the mother of three. She's a self-proclaimed blue state refugee, something I am not yet. <laughs> so yes, um, she's a Timcast news contributor and frequent guest on Timcast IRL, passionate revolutionary historian, and she hosts Spaces with Josie. Please welcome Josie the Redhead Libertarian. All right, awesome. It is so cold here, I do not miss it. I have my room, my thermostat in my room is set to hell, and I, and it's, it's, it's just still not warm enough for me. I, I'm ruined. <laughs> All right, so we're going to talk about revolutionary history today. We're going to talk about a lot of it. I'm going to teach you some new things. This is my favorite thing to do. I do it on Twitter. I do it on Spaces. I do it to my children who don't appreciate it as much as I'm sure you guys will. So I'm not the best public speaker, but I did write everything down. Thank you. <laughs> we do not always know what we're capable of. We might not understand the power of our words until we speak them. This is the human condition. Our curiosities are universal, and so should be our courage. So when Thomas Paine published The American Crisis on December 19th, 1776, he wanted to rally Americans behind the war effort to help them free themselves from the tyranny of King George. And in doing so, he managed to inspire a moment so prolific it would change the course of history. By Christmas of 1776, the Continental Army was more than a year and a half out from the battles of Lexington and Concord, and they were losing. The weather was poor, supplies were dwindling, Many were sick with influenza, typhoid, smallpox. Numbers were falling, whether by death or desertion, and their contracts were set to expire that March. They knew challenging the crown was treason, and if they'd failed, they'd be put to death. Morale was low. The soldiers were demoralized, afraid, and without hope. But on Christmas night, 1776, sitting around the campfire, their stars would change. One of the soldiers had gotten a hold of Thomas Paine's The American Crisis, which had only been published the previous week. The men began passing it around the fire. Each man would take a turn reading aloud, passage after passage, louder, after, louder and louder, and beginning to become more galvanized by the moment. They were suddenly reinvigorated and remembered their purpose. The words of Thomas Paine had lit a fire within these men that would fill them with hope and continue to burn on and just at the right time it would seem. That night, General George Washington would lead those troops across the icy Delaware in a surprise attack against the Hessian mercenaries camped out in Trenton and still sleeping off their Christmas brandy. This win would change the trajectory of the war in history as we know it. Many of these men would attribute their win that night to not only the cunning genius of their commander-in-chief, but the simplicity, cogency, and timeliness of the American crisis.
how easy it is for us to become demoralized, how easy it is to look around and see a two-tiered justice system, state-owned media, questionable election conduct, a behemoth national debt, crippling inflation, unmanageable interest rates, medical tyranny, anti-parent movements, a perverted agenda coming for our children, an invasion at the border, a weaponized FBI against mothers, Catholics, and peaceful protesters, cronyism, corporatism, gaslighting, and abuses of power so extreme they dwarf many of the grievances outlined by Thomas Jefferson in our Declaration of Independence. How easy it is to give up. But to understand the present, we must understand the past. We must recognize that history often rhymes, and we must remain acutely aware that coursing through our veins is the blood of the bravest patriots who ever lived, removed from us by only a handful of generations. It is essential we remember this, especially in times where we feel without hope. We must understand their stories in order to know where to look for the answers to our own. Winter of 1776 was not the first or the only time our forefathers overcame demoralization and fought back. They had done it just three years prior at the Boston Tea Party. In autumn of 1773, flyers and pamphlets began showing up on doors and on trees signed by a mysterious enigmatic man called Rusticus, whose true identity has since been lost to history. The flyers read, Make sure that your watchmen be instructed as they go on their rounds to call out every night at half past 12, beware the East India Company. Since earlier that year, the world's largest multinational conglomerate, the East India Company, or the EIC, had been undercutting the prices of their competitors, those competitors primarily being smugglers like John Hancock and Sam Adams. The colonists had gotten wind of this and had boycotted the EIC in support of their colonial entrepreneurs. The EIC became enraged, and in retaliation, the couple of small ships that they were sending turned into an enormous burden, transporting immense quantities of tea and tying up the harbors. The colonists, already upset, became furious. Now conventional history regarding the Boston Tea Party it tells you that the colonists were provoked by the 1770 Tea Act, 1773 Tea Act, in which Parliament commanded a modest tax hike to be paid by the colonists to settle England's war debt. That's part of it, but that's not nearly the extent of what the Tea Act and King George actually did. In reality, the Townshend Acts of 1767 had levied a three pence per 16 ounces tax on tea. What does that mean? Well, friends, we're going to do some red coat math. So one pound equals 20 shillings. One shilling equals 12 pence. If 16 ounces of tea was priced at 0.11 pound, that would equal about two shillings. So the three pence tax at wholesale added up to about 25%. And that was on one item. So no, we didn't riot over a 2% tax on tea, it was a 25% tax on tea. Sorry about that public school education, everyone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. Hell yeah. All right. So to further put this number into perspective, 
the average tax burden per American household today with sales tax is about 25%. While colonists could have just stopped drinking tea to avoid that tax, Americans today really don't have a choice to of how to escape that burden. However, this backroom deal gets even worse for the colonists from here and even more relatable to you and to I. Enshrined in the Tea Act was the East India Company's petition to the king to suppress the duty on tea to the colonists, which granted the EIC both an absolute monopoly on the tea trade and the largest corporate tax cut in the history of the world. They would also be fully reimbursed by the crown or the taxpayers for all their lost or unsold product, which amounted to billions in today's money. So to recap, England wasn't paying their war debt, the EIC wasn't paying any duties on the tea sent to the colonies, the EIC was being reimbursed for all lost product while having a monopoly, and the colonists were picking up the tab for all of it. And this upset the entrepreneurs, not only because the crown was hurting them with taxation without representation, but the EIC was able to undercut them due to the royal cronyism, which was harming their businesses. Can you imagine if Amazon was having everything reimbursed, not paying any taxes at all? Like that's, that's, that's the only way we can really relate it to today. And that's, you know, that's, that's what was happening. That's probably what's happening now, to be honest. Jesus, all right. <laughs> so how do I know all this? Well, the answer, my friends, is not taught to you in school. It's found in one place, a book. This book is one of the earliest textbooks, and it is titled Retrospect of the Boston Tea Party, a memoir of George R.T. Hughes, who is a survivor of the little band of patriots who drowned the tea in Boston Harbor in 1773. I'm not kidding. That is the name of the book. It is that long. All right. This memoir is the only firsthand account that we have of what happened that night at the Boston Tea Party, and it is a national treasure. <laughs> I'm going to do it. <laughs> Retrospect to the Boston Tea Party with a memoir of George R.T. Hughes, who was a survivor of the little band of patriots who drowned the tea in Boston Harbor in 1773. Yeah, you should hear me say Peter Piper. All right. So very few records of exactly who Hughes was survived the last 250 years. We know he was a friend of Paul Revere and a confidant of George Washington, who once remarked in a letter that Hughes was an incredibly good-natured young man. We also know that while Thomas Jefferson often referred to the Boston Tea Party as the incident down at Boston Harbor, it was actually Hughes who coined the Boston Tea Party. Now, I could give you a rundown in my own words of what happened that night, but the fact that we have a firsthand unadulterated account by a participant is something I feel like we should not take for granted. So I'm going to read to you in George R.T. Hughes' own words the story of what happened that night, December 16th, 1773, 250 years ago, in just a couple of weeks, down at the Boston Harbor when Hughes was just 17 years old. Clint, can you pass this around? from the memoir of George R.T. Hughes. Now this isn't written in traditional English, but I'm gonna do the best I can as if you've ever read a historical document. Say a prayer. 
It was now evening, and I immediately dressed myself in the costume of an Indian equipped with a small hatchet, which I and my associates associates denominated the tomahawk, with which, and a club, after having painted my face and hands with coal dust in a shop of a blacksmith, I repaired to Griffin's Wharf, where the ships lay that contained the tea. When I first appeared on the street, after being thus disguised, I fell in with many who were dressed, equipped, and painted as I was, and who fell in with me and marched in order to the place of our destination. When we arrived at the wharf, there were three of our number who assumed an authority to direct our operations, to which we readily submitted. They divided us into three parties for the purpose of boarding three ships, which contained the tea at the same time. The name of him who commanded the division to which I was assigned was Leonard Pitt. The names of the other commanders I never knew. We were immediately ordered by the respective commanders to board all the ships at the same time, which we promptly obeyed. The commander of the division to which I belonged, as soon as we were on board, the ship appointed me boatswain and ordered me to go to the hatches and get the keys and a dozen candles. I made the demand accordingly, and the captain promptly replied and delivered the articles, but requested me at the same time to do no damage to the ship or its rigging. We then were ordered by our commander to open the hatches and take all the chests of tea out and throw them overboard, and we immediately proceeded to execute his orders, first cutting and splitting the chests with our tomahawks, so as thoroughly to expose them to the effects of the water. In about three hours from the time we went on board, we thus we had thus broken and thrown overboard every chest of tea to be found on the ship. While those in the other ships were disposing of the tea at the same time in the same way, we were surrounded by British armed ships, but no attempt was made to resist us. We then quietly retired to our several places of residence without having any conversation with each other or taking any measures to discover who our associates were. Nor do I recollect of our having had the knowledge of the name of a single individual concerned in that affair, except that of Leonard Pitt, the commander of my division, who I have mentioned. There appeared to be an understanding that each individual should volunteer his services, keep his own secret, and risk the consequences for himself. No disorder took place that night during this transaction, and it was observed at that time that that was the stillest night that ensued that Boston had enjoyed for many months. These men and a handful of women all abided by a strict code of silence that lasted 50 years. Not a soul involved violated that code. Many even took their own participation to their graves, even after it was safe to talk about. There are 116 known participants of the Boston Tea Party, but that number is thought to be 150 to 200. These colonists didn't do it for glory. They did it because tyranny is wrong. We do not know what we are capable of until we do it. We do not know the power of our words until we speak them. If we can learn from our heroes of our past, 
we can defeat the villains of the present and of the future. It is essential in days like these to always seek to be inspired or to be the reason that others are. And if we live by this code, like our forefathers, we will never lose hope. After all, these are the times that try men's souls. And it's only treason if you lose. Thanks, guys. <laughs>